And Lord, I'm just really particularly feeling my need for your help this morning. My mind's kind of feeling scattered, and I just pray that you would help me, help help all of us, Lord, as we open up your word now. We know that there's spiritual war taking place all the time, but especially when we open up the scriptures and we want to talk about Jesus. And so, Lord, would you come now and help me to have wisdom and have the heart that I so long to have here to talk about your son, Jesus. And would you work in all of us, Lord, that we'd be free from distractions, that we would pay heed to your word, that we'd listen earnestly, and that we would take your word deep into our souls. So come and do that now, I pray. We need your help, Jesus, and you love to help us. So come as you promised to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, As we're going through this series on uh, the story of God, I'm really enjoying this. This has just been so uh, encouraging for me. And just want you to know that when we finish up this this series, it's not like we'll have nothing else left to talk about afterwards because we are just like barely scratching the surface on this. But there's one truth that um, I am praying will deeply impact you through this series. Not just impact you, but that you will cherish this truth. And that is that God's overall purpose, his purpose for everything that he does, is to display his glory so that he can share with us his joy in beholding his glory. That's God's purpose for everything he does, to display his glory. That's why he created and everything that's happened in history, that's his purpose, to display his glory so that he can share with us the amazing joy that he has in beholding his own glory. That's his purpose. Now the problem is is that as the story of God unfolds in Genesis 3 and following, it looks like God's purpose derails, doesn't it? Because starting with Adam and Eve in chapter 3, everyone by birth turns their backs on God. Everyone does. Adam and Eve, creatures, creator, turn their back on their creator. Uh, All the world before Noah's flood turned their backs on God. Um, all All the people in Genesis 10 and 11, Tower of Babel, turning their backs on God. The nation of Israel whom God chose for the most part turned their backs on God. And and all of us from birth, we've all turned our backs on God. We've all sinned against God. Our creator, good, loving, kind, wise, merciful creator, we've all turned our backs on him. And so it could look like God's purpose has failed, derailed. No one's paying any attention to God's glory. But it'd be wrong to think that God's purpose has failed. Because there's mystery here. In the mystery of God's sovereignty, he has purposefully allowed sin to spread through the world because our sin will produce an even greater display of his glory than there could ever have been. So our sin will produce an even greater display of God's glory, which means that we, who he saved, will have even more joy in beholding his glory. So God's purpose is not derailed. In the mystery of his sovereignty, he's purposefully allowed all of this to display his glory even more. And and I hope you'll see that this morning. 
uh, as we focus in on the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. What's all this animal sacrifices about? What's going on with that? And to, to dig into that, let's start with this question. What role did animal sacrifices play in the nation of Israel? Okay, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 1. You ever studied Leviticus before? It's a very important book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll pass one out to you. In the Bibles we're passing out, Leviticus 1 is on page 82. In this book, we read about how God gives Moses to give instructions to give to the people of Israel, especially having to do in the first third of the book with burnt offerings, animal sacrifices. You've got Leviticus chapter 1. Again, that's page 82 in the Bibles that we're passing out. Now, here's the question I want to start with um, under this topic. Imagine that you were an Israelite believer. What would you do at those times when it dawns on you that you have turned your back on God and sinned against him? What would you do? Let me just put this in context a little bit. Last week we saw how God gave the law to Israel in Exodus chapter 20. God gave them the law. And there were two main points to the law. The very first statement in the law was not a command, but it's God saying, remember how I delivered you from slavery in Egypt. And God's point in that is to say, you have experienced firsthand my perfect Love and forgiveness and guidance and provision and how I perfectly satisfy your heart with my presence. You have had first-hand experience of my perfect provision, love, guidance, satisfaction, forgiveness, everything I promised to do. You've experienced it. That's the first point of the law. Second point, therefore, rely on me alone. No one else can do these things for you like I can. I'm God. So rely on me alone, and if you will rely on me alone, then for the rest of your life into eternity, I will perfectly love you, forgive you, guide you, provide for you, and satisfy you. Awesome good news, isn't it? This is what God shared through the law, Genesis or Exodus chapter 20. So if you're an Israelite then who's heard this, the law's been revealed to you, what should you do when it dawns on you that you have stopped relying on God? And turned your back on him. Hey, maybe, maybe you're an Israelite hanging out with some of the other Israelite women at Israelite's version of Starbucks or something, and, 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 and you turn from relying on God for your heart's satisfaction, and you move into sharing with all of them something you know negative about another woman who's not there, maybe gossiping. Because, you know, there's that dark satisfaction that comes when you gossip about somebody, right? That's why we do it. And then you're walking home and it just, it just strikes you. You have turned away from relying on God to satisfy you. What should you do at that point? Or, let's say that you are uh, walking through the market um, and you, you covet your neighbor's wife. Okay, You see she's beautiful or whatever and you start to have sexual thoughts about her. And you're, and you're turning from relying on God's guidance He said, don't do that. You're turning from relying on God's promise to satisfy your heart in himself and his presence. So you've just turned your back on God. And then then an hour later, it just hits you. I've turned my back on God and stopped relying on him. Okay, so that's the question. What would you as an Israelite do at those times when you've realized you've turned your back on God? Stop relying on God. You're sinning against God. And the answer is given right here. In Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Here's what you would do. Let's read these verses. The Lord called Moses. 
and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. As I pondered these five verses, I saw four concrete steps that really kind of helped me to to, to pinpoint them. It kind of clarified to me what's going on. And I think the first thing that you would do if you were an Israelite, you've realized you've stopped relying on God, you've turned your back on God, the first step would be to admit your guilt before God. And I see that in verse 3, the last phrase in verse 3. Read the whole verse. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd... He shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Which means that because of your sin before you do this, you're not accepted before the Lord, right? So there's got to be an acknowledgement. Because of my sin, I am not accepted by God. Now why not? Well, it's because of your sin. It's because you've known full well who God is. God's revealed himself to you as perfectly loving, forgiving, guiding, providing, satisfying, caring for you. God's revealed himself to you in this way. You knew this. And so when you turned your back on God, there was no excuse. It's not that you didn't know enough. You knew. And and you turned your back on God. And the reason you did that is for the same reason that I've done that this morning. It's for the same reason we do it today. It's because of the wickedness of creatures, created little creatures like us, dependent, needy creatures, refusing to bend the knee before our awesome, loving, glorious, powerful, good God. That's the bottom line reason. We whitewash sin all the time, but that's sin naked. That's bare sin. That's the, the, the cruel reality of our sin. It's the wickedness of Creatures, little dependent creatures who've received everything from God, gift of life, everything. He's good, he's loving, he's powerful, and we refuse to bend the knee before him because we want to be independent and in control and like God. And God in his justice has to respond to that wickedness with wrath and anger. And it's right, and he feels anger towards you. You'd be realizing this if you were an Israelite, and not just anger, but in his justice, that that sin, that wickedness has to be punished. So you are admitting your guilt before God. You're feeling it. He justly feels wrath against my sin, and that sin has to be punished by God. I am not accepted by God. But, second point, what doesn't stop there? You bring an animal, then, symbolizing a perfect substitute. 
See, if your sin has stirred righteous anger in God and it needs to be punished, how could you ever be on good terms with God again? How can you be forgiven by God? Here's how. Look at verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before God. So God has said, what you've got to do secondly is bring an animal symbolizing, picturing, symbolizing a perfect substitute. Now it's got to be without blemish. It's got to be perfect. Okay, don't bring, you know, the three-legged sheep that no one else is going to want, okay, or the, right, the, the one that's got all kinds of problems. Bring a perfect goat, bull, lamb. And you'd bring a different animal depending on your financial resources. Could be a bull, could be a goat, could be a, a sheep, a lamb, could be even a, a little bird depending on your financial resources. Now, I want to use a lamb to picture this. Okay, so let's, if you're wondering what all these little lambs were up here. Okay, so, so you'd, you'd bring a lamb, okay, um, so you'd bring a perfect lamb. It's got to be without blemish. All right? And this lamb is going to picture how you can be forgiven by God. So don't they kind of bring it this way? Anyway, whatever. All right. He understands. Okay. Uh, third, then. So how can you be forgiven? Third, you would symbolically transfer your guilt to this perfect substitute. Now look at verse 4. He, this is you, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So God says, lay your hand on this without blemish lamb as a symbol of transferring your guilt to this perfect substitute. Okay, so up to this point, It's my guilt. God's wrath is against my sin. My sin needs to be punished. And God says, bring a spotless, perfect lamb. Put your hand on its head to transfer the guilt from you to this lamb. So the guilt is now no longer on you. This is picturing the guilt has moved from you to this perfect substitute. Now this is huge because, and I'll talk about this more a little bit later, But I would guess most all of us often think when you've sinned and you're feeling guilty before God that what you should do to deal with your guilt is to try to be good to make up for it. Right? I'll I'll go to church this Sunday. Okay. I'll go to church. Or I'll I'll be really nice to my wife when she comes home today. Okay, that's better. That's got to do something, right, to, to ease my guilt. And what this pictures is that that is not how to get rid of your guilt. And if that's how you have tried to get rid of your guilt, it's increasing your guilt because you're neglecting the means that God has given you to get rid of your guilt, which is to have a perfect substitute and you put your hand on its head and you symbolically transfer the guilt from you to this perfect substitute. Okay? Now the last line in verse... Four says, it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. That word atonement is a crucial word. It's a, it's a Bible word. You probably haven't used it very often in everyday talk, okay? The word atonement means that there's got to be a way for God's anger against my sin to be propitiated, to be appeased, 
to be assuaged, to be satisfied. There's, there's got to be a, an expression of his wrath. There's got to be punishment that my sin, uh, my sin has got to have punishment from God so that God's wrath can be expressed, propitiated, assuaged, atoned for. So I've transferred my guilt onto this lamb, but no atonement has happened yet. There's one more crucial step, and that's fourth. You have to kill the perfect substitute. Verse 5. Then he shall kill the bull, or the goat, or the lamb, or the bird, whatever your financial resources allow you to bring. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Priest would give you a knife. You would cut the lamb's throat. It would bleed out. And you would take that blood of Aaron's sons and they would throw it against the altar. And your action of, of killing the lamb would be an expression of this lamb upon whom your guilt has been transferred, this lamb being punished for your guilt, for your sin, in your place. You missed the punishments. Someone had to receive the punishments. You've transferred your guilt to a perfect substitute, and in killing the perfect substitute, it expresses how this lamb has taken the punishment from God, the wrath of God against your sin, and this lamb has been punished in your place. Atonement has been made. And so if if God's anger against your sin, if his just anger against your sin, the punishment that needs to be produced, accomplished, is poured out upon the Lamb. All God's wrath against your sin poured out upon the Lamb. All of the punishment that your sin deserved poured out upon the Lamb. That means there's no more punishment, there's no more wrath in God's heart towards you. And so you as an Israelite believer then would feel guilt lift off. And the love of God poured into your heart. You would feel reconciliation. I know, I'm accepted again. The guilt has been transferred. The punishment has been made. Forgiveness has come. The, the storm clouds that were building of God's wrath against me have parted. And the sun of God's love and forgiveness is shining once again. That's the role that animal sacrifice has played in the Old Testament. So think about this. This is what you would do whenever it dawned on you that you have stopped relying on God. So that's why I had a lot of sheep up here because, I mean, you'd be like, you know, you'd be bringing the sheep and you'd be feeling the guilt and you'd be bringing this as a symbol of a perfect sacrifice and you'd be transferring your guilt to the perfect sacrifice and you'd be killing the perfect sacrifice and then and then the next day you know you're you're back again right okay and then you're feeling the guilt for your sin and you're bringing this as a symbol of a perfect substitute and you're transferring your guilt to the perfect substitute and you're killing the perfect substitute and the forgiveness is coming and then do you get the picture so in your life, there would be hundreds and thousands of times where you would bring an animal sacrifice. And in the nation of Israel, all total, there would have been thousands and thousands and thousands. I mean, my picture is that, that the line in front of the door of the tent of meeting would have always been long. People waiting. People waiting. Bah, right, people waiting, okay? And feeling the guilt. Transferring the guilt punishing the perfect substitute, receiving forgiveness, okay? This constant flow of men and women bringing animal sacrifices. 
That's the role that animal sacrifices played in Israel. Okay? Now, what did these sacrifices actually accomplish? You might think that when you kill the lamb, it was actually the killing of the lamb that actually paid for your sin. That at that point, God's wrath was poured out upon your sin and your sin was paid for on the lamb. That's not what happened. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9, 13 and 14. That's way back to the right. Okay, Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. This is on page uh, 1,000, 1,006 in the Bibles we're just passing out. And look at what we read here about these animal sacrifices. Any questions about those animal sacrifices Just that are like right in your mind now that we need to get cleared up, Tom? Why did the sacrifice need to be perfect? Why did the sacrifice need to be perfect? We're, okay, we're going to come to that at the end. Okay, If I don't mention that, raise your hand again, okay? Excellent point. But we'll see it here. This verse is going to answer the question, I think. Any other ones just like that you're thinking, wait, I don't... Just before we move on here, yes, Don. Uh, keep reading, and I don't know all the details of all the sacrifices. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. You'll have to keep reading. It, yeah, that's, that's not vital, though, in terms of what brought you personally forgiveness. Good question. Anything else? Okay, Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. Listen to this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, now get this next phrase, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, big comparison here, blood of goats and bulls, blood of Christ, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, there's the without blemish, and it's because of Jesus, how will the blood of Christ Or how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So all that the blood of bulls and goats and sheep did was to bring some sort of purification of the flesh, some sort of outer ceremonial cleansing. In themselves, they did not, they were not able in themselves to purify anyone's conscience. Okay? In themselves. So in themselves, the animal sacrifices, the killing of that lamb, that's not what removed your guilt when you're an Old Testament believer who walked away rejoicing and being accepted by God. That, that was a symbol of what would do that, but that's not what did it. Really important, okay? So how were the Old Testament believers then able to be forgiven for their sins? Right? Next verse, verse 15, Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore he... Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred, Jesus' death, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. How were the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, the Old Testament time period, how are those redeemed? By Jesus' death, which would take place hundreds of years in the future. So Jesus' death, retroactively, I guess, right, paid for the sins of Old Testament believers. That's what Jesus' death did. Okay, so here's, here's the full picture. 
When an Old Testament believer realized he or she had turned from relying on God and was guilty before God, he would bring, she would bring, uh, first of all, would, would come to the tent of meeting and admit guilt before God. Father, I'm sorry. No excuse. It's sin. It's wickedness. It deserves punishment. I'm sorry. And would bring an animal as a symbol of a perfect substitute. Okay? And then you would lay your hand on its head, picturing the transfer of your guilt to this perfect substitute. And then you would, you would kill this perfect substitute. And then what would happen? As I said, you would feel God's love being poured into your heart. You'd feel forgiveness. You know by experience you're accepted. Oh, how blessed it is the man whose sins are forgiven, Psalm 34 says, right? Old Testament believers knew by experience forgiveness. You know, you've experienced this. The weight fell, went off, my, right? My heart was free, the old John Wesley hymn says. And then, and then you'd, you'd kill the lamb. So you would experience this forgiveness not because of anything that happened with that animal, but because of what would happen in Jesus hundreds of years in the future. It would happen, but this animal thing was just a symbol of what Jesus would do. Okay, so this is just a symbol. But now that raises another question as I just thought about this. Why then 1,500 years of symbols? I mean... That's a lot of symbols, right? It's a lot of symbols, especially if, if the symbols don't in themselves do anything but point to what's going Like, why not just have Jesus come, like, right after Abraham was chosen? Save a whole lot. The lambs would have appreciated it, you know? Saved a whole lot of trouble, right? I mean, why 1,500 years of this entire nation, day after day, week after week, year after year, lamb after lamb, bull after bull, bird after bird, animal sacrifice, animal sacrifice? Why? What's the point? There's probably lots of right answers to this. But I just want to share with you two. One is... As I thought about this and kind of tried to play it out in my mind, I think one impact this would have is that Israel's, Israel's longing for God's perfect substitute would be intensified through all of this. It would grow, grow. Oh, we long for that sacrifice, that perfect substitute. Now, here's why. You're an Old Testament believer. And when you'd bring, when you'd bring this, this animal, a picture of, of a perfect substitute, you would have seen really clearly a couple things. One thing is, to be forgiven, I need a perfect substitute. Crystal clear, right? It's not me and my goodness that's going to God. I did this today good, and I did this today good, and I did this today good. Forgiveness coming? No. No forgiveness is coming. We don't deal with God. He's mercy. We're in trouble. We need mercy and forgiveness. And so the picture of the animal sacrifice would make it so clear. To be forgiven, you need a perfect substitute. You have to have a perfect substitute. You need it, okay? But you would also know that this lamb is not your perfect substitute. I mean, you'd know that, okay? Because, I mean, how can an animal's death take care of your sin? That's just, and that's not, it's not, it doesn't happen that way. So you'd know that you need a perfect substitute, You'd also know that this lamb is not the perfect substitute, and yet you'd know, I was forgiven. So the burning question would be, 
Where's the perfect substitute? What will be the perfect substitute? When will we see the perfect substitute? And so every time you'd bring a, a, an animal sacrifice, oh, I, need, I need a perfect substitute to be forgiven. This animal's not the perfect substitute, but I'm forgiven. So every time, where's the perfect substitute? Where's the perfect substitute? 1,500 years of animal sacrifices. Where, 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 where's the perfect substitute? The whole nation of Israel offering animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice. Oh, I can see we need a perfect substitute. This isn't it, but I'm forgiven. Where's the perfect substitute? And so then can you feel the power of an Israelite hearing John the Baptist one day out in the wilderness shouting, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away really takes away the sins of the world. Can you feel that? I want you to see where that is. It's John chapter 1, verse 29. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. It's page 886 in the Bibles we just passed out. I love this. John 1, 29. Look at what John the Baptist says about Jesus. Page 886. The next day... He, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1,500 years. I need a perfect substitute to be forgiven. This isn't the perfect substitute. I'm forgiven. Where's the perfect substitute? Right here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the perfect substitute. He didn't symbolize the perfect substitute or picture the perfect substitute. He is the perfect substitute who really does take away the sins of the world. So why was Jesus here? Look at two chapters ahead. John 3, 16 and 17. Famous verses, but I hope that they will may be seen from a new depth and glory with this background. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him admits guilt, transfers guilt to him by faith, receiving him as Savior, receiving him as Lord, receiving him, embracing him as treasure, heart-satisfying treasure. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God provides the perfect substitute for his creatures who have rebelled against him. Okay? The, the animal sacrifices all raise the question, where's the perfect substitute? And God provides the perfect substitute in Jesus, his own son, Jesus. Now, I want you to, I'm just praying that we'll get a taste here of, the, of how this displays God's glory. The highest display of God's glory is his mercy, his love, his goodness. 
and the highest display of his mercy and love and goodness is what we are reading about right here. Think about this. The creator of everything, galaxies, right? 500,000 light years, whatever the numbers were I gave you weeks ago. All powerful, good, loving, kind, wise, awesome, creator, God, looks down on a world and the creatures he's created are rebelling against him. And he feels just wrath and justly he could punish them. But what does he do? He provides a perfect substitute for them. His own son. Jesus says, I'll go, Father. Punish me in their place. The Father sends his own son and the Father punishes sin, our sin, in his own son. He provides the perfect sacrifice and he kills, punishes the perfect sacrifice to pay for our sin. I hope you're getting a little taste of that. The glory of the mercy and the love and the goodness of a creator who would provide his own son to be punished so that his creatures can be forgiven. His rebellious creatures. It's awesome. It is amazing. The goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy and the compassion of God. You can be forgiven. Not by trying to be good enough, but by transferring your guilt to God's perfect substitute and receiving him as your savior, as your Lord, as your heart-satisfying treasure. You can be completely forgiven so that all of God's wrath, which all of your sins deserve, was poured out upon Jesus. There is nothing left of wrath in God's heart towards you. There's no more punishment ever that you'll know from God, ever. All that was put upon Jesus and the Father punished Jesus in your place so that you could be forgiven. The glory of a creator doing that for his rebellious creation. We couldn't believe it if God hadn't done it and revealed it to us. That's one reason I think that God wanted 1,500 years so that Israel and so that we can feel with Israel's history, where's the perfect substitute? Where, 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 where? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Another reason, second reason why I think God did this. He wants us to understand how Jesus' death accomplishes forgiveness. I mean, what happened on the cross? What, what was the cross all about? I mean, why are there crosses in Christian churches? Why did Jesus die? Why do we sing about Jesus' death? The animal sacrifices picture for us what Jesus did and how his death can purchase forgiveness for you and how you receive his forgiveness. I would guess most of you here have received and experienced Jesus' forgiveness, but some of you haven't. Oh, I hope you get this. Listen to this. Receive this. Welcome this. Let me just walk through it again. Four steps. The first step is that we, res- we admit our guilt before God. That's the first step. And this is, this is, these are four steps we can all take. Whether you have never put your trust in Christ, take these steps now. Or if you have been trusting Christ for years, take these steps now. These will prepare you for partaking of communion in a moment. So the first step is we admit our guilt before God. Just, just admit it. 
there's no excuse for the ways we've all turned our backs on God. We, God has revealed himself to us with crystal clarity in creation, in the nation of Israel, their history, in the coming of Christ. We have all the evidence we could ever need. And yet we've turned our backs on God. And so just humble yourself before the Lord and say, I have done wrong. And there's no excuse for it. And I am sorry. I'm sorry. Admit your guilt. Now, this may be difficult for some of you because our culture doesn't like guilt. Okay? I mean, our, our culture basically would say, you know, guilt is not healthy to feel. Do, stop feeling guilty. That is not helpful counsel because uh, you are guilty. That's like telling a hungry man who's starving, uh, hunger is a negative thing. Stop feeling hunger. It doesn't feel good. Uh, hunger, like guilt, are there to help us see that something's wrong. Your body's saying, feed me. Your guilt is saying, there's a way to be forgiven. God has given you a way to be forgiven. So the guilt you are feeling, some of you have tried very hard to squelch it, ignore it, whitewash it, justify it, rationalize it. Feel it. It's God's gift to you. And he's going to take it away soon. In a few minutes, if you respond the way he wants you to. The guilt can go. But you've got to admit it and feel it first. So that's the first step. Second, understand that God has provided the perfect substitute, Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully man, the Lamb of God. And as man, he knew all the weaknesses that men, humans experience, and he never sinned. He is the only human being who's ever lived, who has always trusted the Father fully, never ever did anything wrong, flawless, perfect, moral, righteous, good life. And the sacrifice has to be flawless, otherwise it would need to be punished for its own sin. Okay, so it's a good question that Tom raised. God has provided the sacrifice. God has provided the sacrifice, the perfect substitute. So what do you need to do? Knowing that he's provided isn't enough. You need to then take that third step. Transfer your guilt to Jesus. Just like in the Old Testament, you'd put your hand on the head of the sheep, symbolically transferring your guilt to that perfect substitute. Transfer your guilt to Jesus by asking him, would you take upon yourself my sin? Would you take upon yourself my guilt? Would you, Jesus, be punished for my sin? That's how you transfer your guilt. Would you do that? I receive you now as Savior. I receive you as Lord. I want to, I want to, I'd love to bend the knee before you and worship you and obey you. I receive you as Lord. I receive you. I welcome you as heart-filling treasure. You are my soul satisfaction fully and forever. So you receive Jesus as Savior, as Lord, as treasure, and all your guilt is transferred onto him. And then fourth, we need to understand that if we're trusting Jesus, then his death paid the punishment for all your sin. Past, present, future. All of it. So all the wrath that was justly in the Father's heart towards you, all the punishment that was justly coming towards you was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. 
Jesus absorbed it all, received all the punishment, and now all this coming from the Father towards you is love and compassion and mercy. You are reconciled to God. He is smiling upon you. The sun of his love is shining upon you. The storm clouds of wrath have blown away. And that's how it's going to be forever. That's the reality of what Jesus has done. And so God has given us 1,500 years for us and for Israel to see the vital need for a perfect substitute and how Jesus is the perfect substitute. Let's come before the Lord Jesus now and before God the Father in his glory and mercy and, and worship him. So Lord, would you come upon us now, I pray? Make this real to us, Jesus, I ask. As personal, as tangible as it would have been for an Old Testament believer to bring that lamb, to lay his hand on that lamb's head, to cut the lamb's throat, would you make this as real as that, Lord, as we see our guilt transferred to you, as we see the punishment you received from the Father that we deserved, and as we receive your full and free forgiveness, love, mercy, goodness, forever, because of Christ. Lord Jesus, we want to worship you. We want to remember what you did. We want to praise you, love you, and receive you afresh. So bring your power upon us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.